North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Impossible State podcast at CSIS. My name is Victor Cha. I'm Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS and Professor at Georgetown University. Um, uh, this podcast is hosted by Andrew Schwartz and myself, and uh, I'm playing the role of host today. And we're very happy to welcome uh, our good friend Ramon Pacheco Pardo to the Impossible State podcast for our Viewers and listeners, let me properly introduce Ramon. He is a professor of international relations at King's College London and holds the KF VUB Korea Chair at the Brussels School of Governance uh, in Brussels. So he is, you are basically the European equivalent of me, right? You are the EU Korea Chair, uh, but of course you're younger and much more dynamic and more handsome than I am. So. Uh, Ramon is also the King, uh, King's College Regional Envoy for East and South Asia, helping to shape and implement the university's strategy for the region. Uh, he is an adjunct non-resident fellow with us here at CSIS, but also a non-resident fellow with the Sejong Institute and a committee member of CSCAP EU. Uh, his publications include uh, the books Shrimp to Whale, South Korea from the Forgotten War to K-Pop, published by Hearst and Oxford last year. Uh, that's a great book. We used it in my, actually, we used it in my class this semester. Uh, and North Korea-U.S. Relations from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un, published by Rutledge in 2019. Uh, he's also an editor, has been editor for Millennium, the journal Millennium, and sits on the editorial boards of East Asia and International Quarterly, EU China Observer, uh, and the Global Studies Journal. He holds a PhD in International Relations, from the from the LSE, which I guess is now called the London School of Economics and Political Science. Right. Anyway, um, Ramon, you're a good friend of CSI, so we're happy to have you back on the show, um, <clears throat> and um, and happy to talk about something uh, new for our listeners that is forthcoming. We uh, a book that we co-authored. Uh, if we could pull up the cover of the book, that would be great. Um, this is a. Uh, book that was, uh, that we chose to, well, why don't you talk a little bit about why we chose to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, I don't know about handsome, but, but thanks for the introduction. Uh, I, I think this book, when we first started talking about it, if I remember correctly, uh, which actually was here at the CSIS, I remember we had a meeting, and I think we both felt uh, that there was a need for an academically informed book for the general public that discuss the history, analyze the history of the two Koreas, the modern history of the two Koreas, late 19th century 
uh, until today is it's really updated until until the current uh, administration in, in South Korea, for example, the UN administration. Uh, and, and I think that's when we started uh, looking at the possibility of co-authoring uh, this book, because I wanted to bring, of course, the, the American perspective that that you bring, plus, plus your experience as a practitioner, and the European perspective uh, as well, that maybe is less uh, well-known. Uh, and, and then we combine the, the academic research we have done, uh, our experiences uh, as well. Uh, in your case, of course, dealing with North Korea, working for GARM, in that case, also talking to North Koreans, uh, South Koreans as well, both of us. Uh, and then that's how we put the book together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that it was a very fun collaboration. Um, it's ac- it was actually it's actually my first collaboration. I, most of the all the other books I've written have been single authored. So um, so this was uh, completely painless, and it was actually a lot of fun. Um, where do you think again for our readers and listeners? If we can pull up a co- uh, picture of the book cover, I know it's behind us, but that would be that would be great as well. Um, the um, where do you think this book sort of fits in the literature on uh, on Korea? There it is. There's a cover. There's a cover of the book for our, for all of our. Uh, I guess not our listeners, but our viewers. Here's a cover of the book. It's um, uh, the. Uh, this is being published by Yale University Press. They chose the color hot pink mm-hmm. for the for the cover. I guess it will stand out on a on a bookshelf if we see it. And not to be blatantly self promoting, but there is the web page at Amazon where you can purchase the book. It as you can see, it will be released on June 27th, uh, 2023. So um, anyway, Ramon, where, where do you think this book sort of fits in the literature on, um, on Korea right now? I think I would say it's, it's a, a, an informed introduction uh, to the modern history of, of, of Korea. Uh, so in, in my view, when, when we're co-authoring it, I was thinking of uh, someone who has some interest in Korea, maybe because of uh, K-pop, maybe because of uh, North Korean uh, nuclear weapons, and they want to learn more uh, about the history of, of the of the two countries. Uh, first of all, obviously, as a unified country later on after the division, and how everything fits uh, together, but also the relationship uh, between both. And I think that's something I particularly enjoyed that we divide the chapters on North Korea on the one hand, South Korea on the other hand, but we pull them together to actually uh, look at the relationship and how they compare to, to each other. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, stands out maybe from, from other books that really treat them as a separate entities. And I think that's something we really try to avoid with the book. Yeah, I think one of the things that I liked about it was the way, and it was particularly in your chapters, because I did sort of the earlier chapters on the late 19th century in the, the Korean War, and you did sort of the more contemporary chapters, was the way that you pulled together both the narrative of Korea and the narrative, the narrative of North Korea, and the narrative of South Korea, together in the same chapter, covering a certain period of time. So you see the evolution, or in, in North Korea's case, the de- devolution mm-hmm. of these countries over time. You see how the trajectories start out at the same, and then they 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 gradually start to change. So that made it really interesting. The other thing I really liked about uh, the book, and I and particularly liked about your chapters, is. Um, you, you write about something we don't often talk about when we talk about Korean politics and society, and we don't often see it in the history books about Korea. Is you talk about things like um, the the the, wim, the women's movement um, and how that was important for democracy, and also uh, the the growth of the LGBTQ plus community. Right? These are not things we often see in books, uh, history books on Korea, and I think it's a it makes it it makes it a unique piece of work. Um, when I 
thought about this project with you, uh, I always felt like the book that everybody read when they read the history of Korea was to read the book that uh, the famous Don Oberdorfer wrote, uh, The Two Koreas. I mean, you've read the book, I've read the book, you've assigned the book, I've signed the book. It's a great book. It's a terrific book, but it's, it's been many years since that was published. And, um, and so we're hoping that this book will help to uh, fill some of the void. Um, of the Oberdorfer book, though, it's still a, it's still a terrific book. So, um, so uh, again, uh, we're, very, we're happy that we're happy with the unusually bright pink color of the cover, the tigers, and uh, the book will be coming out um, in June, June 27th, uh, and is now available on Amazon. Um, but um, let's move on to other topics, and in particular, I wanted to, la on the last episode of The Impossible State, we had sort of a deep dive with uh, Jin Myung Kim um, of uh, Chosun Ilbo on the summit. And um, uh, not that we should talk about the summit forever, but I, I'd love to sort of get the view from Europe. What was the Europe view of the Yun State visit to, to Washington? For me, to begin with, the most interesting thing is that there was a lot of attention, uh, many media requests to discuss a summit that wasn't involved in Europe at the end of the day, it was involved in the US uh, and Korea. Uh, and I think there was a lot of emphasis on, in Europe on, on, on two matters. Uh, one of them, economic security, is a very big issue in, in, in Europe. There's a lot of talk about uh, China, uh, as, as there is obviously here in, in the US, and there is, of course, in, in, in Korea and, and, and the region. So a lot of talk about what are Korean firms? Uh, what is the Korean government going to do to, uh, with the Biden administration? Not only the investment by different Korean firms that we are seeing here, but the uh, visit to MIT, for example, in which uh, innovation was uh, was being discussed. Uh, because I think from a European perspective, uh, we, we've seen, for example, European leaders, uh, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, uh, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte going to uh, to Korea uh, to discuss this explicitly, right? Uh, can, can, can Samsung, uh, other Korean firms invest uh, in Europe as well as they are doing here? But how can there be cooperation, for example, there's a chip for alliance, how can there be cooperation between uh, Dutch firms, for example, that are also involved in the semiconductor business, uh, potentially with the chip for alliance? So there was a lot of interest on that component. And there was also uh, quite a bit of interest on, 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 on the links uh, between uh, Russia and China. Um, I think the link that in the U.S. has been discussed for a longer period of time uh, in Europe since Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, has become a very hot topic uh, because of the no, no, no limits partnership between China and, and, and Russia. So there was a lot of interest to see, for example, in the statement uh, what was going to be written about uh, Ukraine. Uh, but also, for example, about uh, China or the Taiwan uh, Strait, uh, South China Sea, uh, because Europe is looking more at, at, at this region. It's looking more at uh, having its own, for example, the EU, its own coordinated maritime presence in what, what is essentially South China Sea, even though it's not called in this way. But, but from a European perspective, the more navies uh, from like-minded partners, uh, US, of course, but, but Korea, Japan, Australia, uh, the better. So, so there was a lot of interest on, on this discussion as well. Interesting. I, I just on Ukraine. That what struck me was that the paragraph in the joint statement on Ukraine was very prominently placed at the very top of the joint statement, which I thought was quite unusual. Usually, the top thing is North Korea. That was buried somewhere underneath, but it was sort of the main featured uh, item in the in the in the joint statement after the introductory paragraphs, which. Gives one a sense that Yun Yun is um, really committed to 
helping to defend Ukraine in whatever way that Korea can. No, not only that. I mean, he mentioned this in, in his speech, for example, right, to, to of, of, of Congress. And, and again, I got many media inquiries, also from European officials, of course, and media inquiries about the, the speech uh, itself, which, again, I found surprising because it's not necessarily something that uh, Europe would have cared about uh, in, in the past, a uh, Korean president in this case. Uh, giving a, a speech to the UN session of Congress, uh, and, and, and there was a lot of questions about uh, Ukraine being mentioned not only in the UN session, as you mentioned, but also uh, in, in the speech as well. So, so that was quite uh, interesting uh, to see how that was the main focus. Very few questions about North Korea, as you mentioned. I think from a European perspective, I wouldn't say it's a non-issue because it is an issue, but it's really secondary, uh, differently from what it would have been a few years ago, obviously, when President Trump was in office. Uh, there was a lot of questions about it, and not anymore, actually. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, the uh, the other thing you mentioned was that there is a lot of interest uh, in, in uh, the China aspect of this, and so I would like to go to that because that was sort of the main topic that we advertised for the for this uh, ish, uh, this episode of the impossible state so and this still relates to the joint statement in, in that so there are a number of passages in the joint statement that really are quite unprecedented in terms of um, the 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 target I would say of of these statements so just for our listeners let me let me just point to some of these one of them is about economic coercion. Right, in which the two leaders say, quote, we share deep concerns about and express opposition to harmful uses of economic influence, including economic coercion, as well as use of opaque tools with respect to foreign firms, and will cooperate with like-minded partners to counter economic coercion. It's pretty clear who that's about, right? That's about China. If you go a couple of paragraphs down, um, I think this is sort of the, the key the key paragraph. It says, quote, the presidents reiterated the importance of preserving peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait as an indispensable element of security and prosperity in the region. Um, uh, they strongly oppose any unilateral attempts to change the status quo in the Indo-Pacific, including through unlawful maritime claims, the militarization of reclaimed features and coercive activities. Uh, uh, Yun and Biden also reaffirmed their commitment to preserve unimpeded commerce, freedom of navigation and overflight and other lawful use of the sea, including in the South China Sea. So, um, end of quote. Um, so that's a pretty big statement uh, in, the, in the U.S. ROK bilateral joint statement. Um, what has been the Chinese reaction to this? I think China has been quite clear that uh, it doesn't like the direction of travel of South Korean foreign and, and, and defense policy and economic policy, and very openly critical. And what I find interesting is that in the past, China may have done this uh, behind closed doors, but now it's being very open about it. Uh, we have seen this not only in, in Chinese media, but as uh, spokespeople from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. For example, I mean, if you, you recall back when the Indo-Pacific strategy was released, the South Korean Indo-Pacific strategy in December, and the following day, there was already criticism from, from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, very pointed criticisms, essentially saying that, that from their perspective, South Korea has uh, chosen sides. But what I find 
from my perspective, more interesting because I focus more on the South Korean side is that South Korea is, is, is hitting back. It's not uh, bowing its head. Uh, it's not apologizing. And it's actually saying, well, this is our foreign policy and this is not the way to deal with a, uh, with a, with a partner or, or, or not a partner, sorry, with a neighbor. Right, that is in the same in the same region, and I find this interesting because I think in the past South Korea may have thought South Korean politicians so may have taken a step too far, but you don't see this anymore, right? Uh, you actually see ambassadors being called uh, consultations. Uh, you see uh, the South Korean uh, government saying uh, China is being undiplomatic uh, and and in a sense uh, directly responding to this criticism. And I actually think that I always said, actually, uh, not with the current administration, but uh, going back to previous administration, that in my view, uh, South Korea should be more assertive for, for lack of a better word, because it has its own assets. Uh, yes, China is the bigger economy and it's a stronger military uh, power. Very less has a, a bigger military and, of course, uh, bigger military spending. Uh, but South Korea is not a minor uh, anymore, right? So in the same way that other countries, Australia in the past, for example, have responded to China in my view that's something that South Korea should do and understand of course why some South Korean policymakers and business people are concerned but you know coming from Europe if China is going to criticize a country it's going to find a reason to do so right and I think with South Korea they will find a reason to criticize South Korea they've done it with that of course in, in the past with unofficial economic sanctions they even criticize uh, the Moon government when it talk about COVID-19 about the origins of, of COVID-19 and now very openly criticizing the, the Yoon government yeah, if we could pull up the, the slide, um, I wanted to show one other thing to our uh, viewers. I think that um, the, um, the it's interesting. So this is, I just wanted to show this to our viewers. So this is from the Global Times, um, and it just gives you a sense of how this is, as Ramon, as you said, this is now, this used to be something that was discussed behind closed doors between the two sides, but now it's sort of open in the press. And you can see here in particular, there's, the opening part of this statement that was uh, that was in the Global Times um, about a, a letter that was sent by the South Korean embassy in China to the Global Times for a, in a formal protest for the way that they had reported on the the Yun visit and the way that they had talked about Yun. The South Koreans basically took offense at that and they've lodged a, for, uh, a formal protest with the paper, which the paper is now has now published and has has um, has uh, um, fought back on, has slapped back on. So this is now out in the open. This is a very open dispute between the two sides. Um, um, in one sense, it's not surprising because uh, when the Yun government started uh, and what, when they came to CSIS, when a transition team came to CSIS, their messages were very clear. They said very clearly they wanted to, you know, the United States relationship was primary and very clearly that they wanted to improve relations with Japan mm -hmm. and focus on economic security. So they were very clear about certain things, but on China, it was very um, neutral, mm -hmm. sort of just important neighbor, important economic partner, uh, what's the term they use? Uh, mutual respect, yeah. right? Mutual respect, good relationship, and, but that was it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're right, we're seeing that over time it's becoming clearer and clearer the position that the Yun government is taking. Uh, and I think the Chinese at first uh, wanted to keep it sort of suppressed. They didn't want it to come out into the open because it's kind of embarrassing to them. Um, uh, but now because of what we saw in this summit, it's, it's, now, it's now very much, very much in the open. Um, and our friend, uh, 
the uh, the ROK ambassador in China um, is uh, probably very busy. Or Chang Jiehou mm -hmm. is probably a former S, uh, for, not former, still current Seoul National University professor of international relations, China expert, who is now um, the ambassador in Beijing. Uh, our friend, I think, is probably very busy now, having to deal with uh, with the after aftermath of the of the joint statement. Where do you think this is going to go? Like, where do you think that um, this uh, uh, diplomatic dispute will have? Will it will it escalate? Will it? You know, are we just in a period and it will then die down? Uh, when you look at this, what do you see coming down the road? In the short term, I think it, it, it will escalate. Um, I don't see it. I don't see China changing its position any anytime soon. Uh, also, because now we have the G7 summit uh, coming up. Uh, we have the NATO summit coming up, and we know uh, Korea and the AP4 uh, have been in invited to, to, to go to, to Lithuania. So you are going to see more statements, uh, which uh, South Korea will sign together with uh, other countries, uh, where China is going to be uh, mentioned, or, or, or Taiwan is going to be mentioned. Uh, we also have actually the, the um, EU-Korea summit coming up on 22nd of May. So, so European presidents, uh, von der Leyen and Michel, they're going to uh, to Korea. Uh, I'm still unsure whether China will be mentioned by name, but clearly these issues of economic security, stability uh, will be under uh, under discussion as it's going to be next door, next door to China. So we have three meetings uh, in, in a row uh, in which uh, South Korea is going to sign up to what we assume is going to be pretty strong uh, language on, on, on China. And some of these statements, as I said, may, may, may have China by name or may mention Taiwan uh, by name. The discussion of, for example, the NATO summit, should, should Taiwan be mentioned or, or Taiwan straight at, at the very least. Uh, then later on, I think the issue that China has right now, they has problems with many different uh, countries. It's not only Korea. Of course, it's the US, it's Australia, uh, Japan, of course, but also European, European countries. So I think what we're seeing is that Many different countries, India, of course, the border dispute, have issues with China. And I don't know to what extent China can afford uh, to have disputes with so many different uh, countries, especially the, the big ones, of course, the U.S., but there are all these, all these other ones. While at the same time, it has to deal with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which at the very least seems China is not very comfortable with, with the way the, the, the invasion is, is, is going. Uh, and how some countries are calling out on China to to, to do more um, to to convince Putin in this case, right, to to to, to stop the invasion. So I think that in the midterm, it may be that this, if if it doesn't come down, at least uh, it quiets a little bit, uh, because I don't think China has the bandwidth to discuss, discuss all these different disputes. And we've seen with Europe how they're trying to change the discourse. With Europe, it's not working very well, but at least they're trying to change the message uh, towards Europe. And my impression is that eventually they will try to do the same with other countries in Asia in this case, including Korea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing, uh, just for again, for our viewers and listeners, the thing that China took most offense with in, the, in this joint statement, as well as I think in an interview that President Yun gave was that he referred to uh, for to uh, contingency in the Taiwan Straits as a, as a regional and global issue. Uh, and of course, China sees it entirely as a domestic issue, um, but I think uh, um, just like the war in Ukraine is not a European issue, it's a global issue, uh, conflict in the Taiwan Straits would be a global issue. And I think that's what the Chinese take most offense at. And the Korean side has basically stood firm in terms of their belief, in terms of their belief on, on, on that. Um, also, could we, could you, you mentioned again that 
Um, you know, we have the EU-Korea summit, May 22nd, right? We have G7 and Hiroshima, uh, the NATO summit plus the AP4, uh, Australia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea um, in Vilnius in, in Lithuania. And these may or may not make statements about Taiwan, but they will certainly make statements about economic security and economic coercion. And so, uh, what could you say a little bit about what, where you think the South Koreans are on this particular issue? I think that the position right now is becoming clear that they feel threatened. I mean, they were one of the first countries that suffered Chinese economic coercion, uh, going back to uh, the announcement by President Park, not the deployment of, of, of that. So, so they know about it before Australia, other European countries such as Lithuania itself, for example, started to suffer the same. And I think that they feel that right now there is a framework for cooperation with the US, uh, of course, growing links that you mentioned with Japan in terms of economic security, but also with Europe, uh, that have allowed them to, to, to diversify. Of course, there's growing investment in Southeast Asia as well, uh, and to suffer less than they did in the past, South Korea did in the past from Chinese economic coercion, because it took the hit in 2016. I think many South Koreans feel that didn't receive enough support from the international community back then. But I think now it has changed and, and uh, they feel that other countries would come in their support. Um, and it's not only about the US, I think in this case, it's about other countries in the region, in the Indo-Pacific region, but also, as I said, from, from Europe as well. Plus, I think the diversification component is, is crucial here. And, and there are good business reasons why, why the big table and other firms have been shifting part of their the, the production uh, and networks outside of, 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 of China. Uh, supply chains, uh, but there are also economic security reasons. And I think in a sense this has uh, emboldened, in this case, the young government to be a bit more vocal than it may have been in, 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 in the past. That's something I've, I've noticed as well. And I've noticed the increasing talk in South Korea about economic interdependence between China and South Korea. And, and yes, of course, China is the you biggest not, market. Not economic dependence. Not dependence, exactly. Economic interdependence, right? Yeah. And, and yes, China is the biggest economy and will continue to, to be so. But on the other hand, China needs, for example, uh, South Korean technology, right? Uh, and it's not only about semiconductors, but semiconductors. But uh, the technology is as well that China, uh, if it doesn't depend on South Korea, it is interdependent with South Korea. And I think that's a change in mentality that wasn't there before, but clearly with the young government. And uh, I think other policymakers actually as well, they have been pointing this for years, but now it's government policy that, that allows South Korea to be more vocal and, and work together with other partners. Yeah, yeah. And and what about the general public in South Korea? I know that uh, that had a major mm -hmm. impact on the way uh, South Koreans think about uh, China. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, how, how, what is the state of that today? It's that you're, you're right, but we shouldn't forget that this goes back to the time when China made some historical claims to part of the Korean Peninsula, right? A uh, territory that most people would agree has been Korean territory for, 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 for centuries, if not even even longer, right? And, and you started to see a soaring of views, especially among the young people, but now I think it's, it's really all age groups have a negative view of, of, of China. Uh, and I think that matters because in, in a democracy foreign policy at least should be in tune with public opinion or should try to be in tune with public opinion. I think this has actually helped the young government to say, well, if 80, sometimes even 90% of South Koreans express a negative view of China, we are implementing a policy that 
at the very least, it's not going to create a backlash uh, domestically, but could actually uh, represent the views of a majority of South Koreans. And I, and I think that that matters. And, and, and that, I think, was a major issue because many Koreans took the economic hit, and not only companies, but also the tourism sector to the economic hit. Uh, and, and, and they realized, well, this can happen at, at any point in time for a sovereign decision that South Korea took. Essentially, it was a sovereign decision in the same way that China claims Taiwan is a sovereign issue. South Korea would say, well, what about that deployment then? Uh, it could be a, a sovereign decision f- from ourselves. And I don't see, see that changing, uh, to be honest. Uh, I think it would be difficult to change because it's one issue after another. And now we see many South Koreans expressing their worry about Taiwan because many of them express that worry about what happened in Hong Kong. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I know we focus... A lot uh, from outside of, of Korea, we focus on on that because it was a big issue of many South Koreans themselves. When when the crackdown on Hong Kong uh, Hong Kong's liberties happened, many South Koreans were critical of it, right? And now they're concerned about what may happen in Taiwan as well. So, so I think there's one issue after another that there's this negative opinion uh, among general public opinion, really. And then there's a sort of perennial issues with in South Korea-China relations that. Um, would, are probably viewed in a, are framed in a different context today. So, for example, um, the yellow dust problem, mm-hmm. right? That's something that's always there, but yeah. in, it's in a different context now, so it probably affects the Korean psyche even more. It's quite, you know, it is quite a long way from, uh, I remember when um, South Korea normalized relations with China in 1992 and um, the euphoria you know, around the Korean Peninsula at sort of finally, you know, after really half, almost half a century of non-dialogue coming out of the Korean War, that it was sort of this, it was like a family reunion, right? A a renewal of Confucian brotherhood and sisterhood, like all this economic opportunity, it was all sort of very, very positive. Um, You know, and, and we look at the situation, what, 30 years later, and it's really come full. It's really come full circle now, um, both on on in terms of the security threat, the economic concerns, all all these sorts of things, uh, as you said, that have now penetrated down um, to uh, to the grassroots level, uh, where the way people feel about these things. Yes, yeah, something I find interesting uh, when doing research for for the book that we wrote, for example, I, I was looking at the uh, K-pop fandom, right. And even this fed into it, because at some point you may recall, right, uh, China imposed restrictions on, on K-pop concerts in China, right? And many fans were saying, well, what are we talking about here, right? You might have a security and political dispute with us, but this should be completely uh, separate. You know, your BTS or Blackpink, you know, if you want to have a concert in China, uh, why, why not? But that was actually restricted. So actually this feeds, right, is one thing after another that many... South Koreans feel, uh, in this case, because K-pop is global, obviously, even people who are not South Korean, right, feeling, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And we actually saw a backlash within China, right, because there are also K-pop fans that were saying, well, how can this fit in relations with South Korea? It shouldn't be part of it. So so I agree, it's one thing after another, right? Mm, interesting, interesting. Um, uh, okay, so let me um, segue now to, uh, well, we already talked about Yun in Europe and Ukraine, so um, that was the next thing on my list, but we already talked a little bit about that. So let's um, finish by talking a little bit about about North Korea. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, I mean, I guess it says something that w- when we do a lineup of different things to talk about Korea, it ends up being at the bottom of the list rather than the top of the list. Um, 
Uh, how did the North Korean government react to the summit? And and um, and secondly, like Europe has a very distinct uh, window on North Korea because you know many countries have embassies there and they have people on the ground. So um, and and of course in London there's the North Korean representation in London. So maybe you could give our viewers and listeners a view on that as well. But first, I think um, sort of how did they react to this uh, big meeting between the U.S. and South Korea? Yeah, well, I mean we, we we saw that criticism coming from from North Korea, which uh, m my impression is that by North Korean standards, uh, it even went beyond a little bit what we have seen uh, in, in, in the past, because um, of what we're discussing before that the too many issues being talked about. And of course, North Korea has clearly sided with Russia in its invasion of Ukraine, really one of the very few countries that had, has done this. But there were also the statements, as you said, that uh, indirectly mentioned China. And I think that that's another dimension, right? That this wasn't only about North Korea, it's about uh, US uh, and, and, and South Korea discussing uh, North Korea, yes, but also Russia discussing uh, China. Uh, and of course, maybe we'll draw the, the relationship between three of them, the triangular relationship. And I think that has this other dimension for, for, for North Korea as well, right? That it is, has been put in this group of countries that are critical uh, that are um, cooperating to, uh, with Russia, with China, some people at the, in Europe, at Iran, for example, to the group as well. And, and I guess that's why the criticism has this other, uh, this other mention. Uh, I mean, what is interesting about this is, as, as we say in, in, in Europe, right, because we see this uh, uh, even military support that we see from, from South Korea to, to the countries in Europe that are supporting Ukraine, Poland, Estonia, uh, Norway, discussions with Romania, for example, with, even with, with, with Turkey uh, as well. Uh, now I'm saying, well, there is this uh, uh, Cold War, so to speak, that is becoming hot between the two Koreas being played in the European continent because we know the, the, the supply of weapons from North Korea to, to Russia. I think we have solid proof that this has actually uh, happened. Uh, and, I, and I want to link this to that point that you made about the European perspective on North Korea because, as I mentioned before, it's, it's a really secondary issue. But now North Korea's support for Russia has become another problem for Europe. It has become another problem because there was an issue with uh, the proliferation regime and the proliferation that North Korea had uh, for example, to Middle Eastern countries that many Europeans feel is a potentially direct threat to Europe, never mind the, the, the threat to the global non-proliferation regime. But now with North Korea providing uh, military support to Russia, that's directly affecting Europe, right? And it's directly affecting a European country, in this case Ukraine, plus, plus all the countries supporting uh, Ukraine. So what you see now is that this is another issue that Europeans want to discuss uh, with North Korea we have, I think, many reports that point out that North Korea should open uh, at some point in the coming in the coming months, and there are certainly Europeans uh, who would go back to uh, the embassies, right? Uh, so they go back to their posts because now all of them had to leave. Uh, you know, UK, Sweden are keen on, on doing this, for example. But also to have North Koreans coming from Pyongyang uh, to Europe, right? Because this hasn't happened since the pandemic started, uh, and to see what message they want to deliver. Because in the past we have seen that in private the message that North Korea delivers is different from the public statements, right? And they try to be more nuanced, qualified, their message. So many Europeans want to hear directly from North Koreans who come from Pyongyang, because they're the ones at the end of the day who have inside information about what do they really think 
about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, because are Europeans who think that maybe the message in private may be different from that in public. It may be that it's the same, but some European, many Europeans feel that this could be the case. That's interesting. The um, so um, the. Yes, I think it would be very interesting. We don't know when North Korea will open up. I know that there are many European um, uh, ambassadors who are sort of waiting. Uh, they've all, I think, they've all asked, right? They've all asked to go back into the country formally, yes. and now they're waiting. They're waiting for a response. But I think that the other point about North Koreans coming back to Europe um, uh, is interesting uh, in terms of what they're. Going to say, because like you said, we actually have no idea because of the three-year lockdown. We have absolutely no idea uh, what they really what they really think about uh, about the issue. And and yes, the provision of arms to Russia has brought North Korea squarely into the heart of European security concerns, um, which is probably not a place they want to be if they ever had. Relatively speaking, in the Western world, if they ever wanted, uh, um, if they ever had a um, um, a voice or an interlocutor that was, um, how should we say? I would not say more sympathetic, but more multi-dimensional in terms of the way they could have a conversation than the United States, because mm-hmm. like we only have one tune, and that's denuclearization. <laughs> it's nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, but the Europeans, you could have you could have dialogues with them on on cultural issues, cultural exchanges, um, and on and on other things, not just not just the single nuclear issue. Um, they've uh, the North Koreans, whether intentionally or not, have really alienated that that group by uh, providing arms to providing arms to Russia. So it will be interesting to see what will happen uh, once they open up. Um, so Ramon, it's really good to have you here in Washington D.C. I know that you or you have a busy day. You have another conference you need to go over to over at our uh, our, um, our friends at KEI. So it's a real pleasure um, to have you on The Impossible State. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun co-authoring this book with you. Um, for Again, for our readers, uh, for our viewers and listeners, uh, the book is called Korea, A New History of South and North, published by Yale University Press, due out uh, in June, um, um, uh, appropriate for the 70th anniversary uh, of the um, of uh, the armistice of the Korean War. Um, um, so uh, again, thanks again for being with us, viewers and listeners. Thank you for uh, following us on another episode of The Impossible State, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks very much. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, Email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.